We're going to read again now from God's Word, this time from the New Testament book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, My text this evening is particularly verses 10 to 21 of this chapter. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. This begins in the Black Church Bibles on page number 1,165. Philippians chapter 3, page number 1,165. Let's hear the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So reads God's precious and holy words. And let's come again to him, to our God in prayer as we bring some of our needs and our petitions to him. Let's bow our heads and our hearts as we pray together. Gracious and almighty God, we've just been singing how you are our refuge in each deep distress. The Lord, our strength and glorious righteousness. That through floods and flames you lead us safely on and that you daily make your matchless goodness known. And as we come to you to pray tonight, we do want to bring those uh, to you whom uh, such words are particularly uh, uh, pressing and and true at this time. We look out across our world and we see many brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who face great persecution tonight. We want to bring before you our brothers and sisters in in northwest India who are currently being attacked and, and facing church buildings being burnt down by Hindu extremists. And we ask, gracious God, that you might draw close to them at this time that you might help them to rejoice, knowing that they are blessed if they are persecuted, because great is their reward in the kingdom of heaven. And we would likewise pray for those in Nigeria who are facing attacks from Boko Haram at this time. And we pray, loving Father, that yet you would sustain your people, that you would draw near to them at this time, and that yet somehow this might be used for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. We look around our world, Heavenly Father, and we also see parts of the world where there is much suffering through war. We continue to pray for, for the nation of Ukraine, uh, facing such, such vile attacks day by day, with such untold suffering, that so many lives lost, so many people displaced. And Father, yet we thank you for the testimony of many Christian believers in that place who have been loving their neighbour, who, who have been uh, putting others before themselves, self-sacrificially caring for the needy. And we pray, gracious God, that you would use your people greatly for your glory, that you would keep your church united and that you would help them to proclaim boldly the word of truth. Likewise, we pray for the nation of Sudan uh, with such civil war inflicted upon it. And we pray, gracious God, that yet there might be peace in that nation and that those who are suffering, those who have lost, lost, lost everything, yet you might be pleased to provide their daily bread. Gracious God, as we think of such places around the world, we want to also pray for our own nation tonight. We thank you for the freedom that we have uh, to live in relative peace around our nation. We thank you for the liberty we have even to gather this evening without fear of of what might happen to us. And we pray yet that you might uphold that freedom in our land. We thank you for our government. We want to pray for them as your word commands us. Gracious God, we know that they have many pressures upon them. And yet we pray that you would help them to rule by principles of fairness and justice that you would help them to to, to rule wisely in a way that concerns for all people. We particularly pray for for issues of gospel liberty that are in the the news at the moment. We continue to pray about the whole issue of conversion therapy. And loving Father, we do pray that 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 legislation might not be brought to pass in such a way that gospel freedom is impinged upon. We likewise pray, Heavenly Father, for, for the stories about euthanasia that rumble away in the background. And we pray that there would not be a turning of the tide in our land in favour of, uh, of such abhorrence. But instead that there might be a recognition of the, the dignity of life for all, because all are made in the image of God. Loving Father, we pray too for Christian MPs particularly and ask that you would help them as they seek to uh, do, do their duty, as, as, they, as, as they, uh, they seek to rule in, in wise ways. We pray for those in the civil service and other positions of influence in our nation and ask, loving Father, that you would uphold and strengthen Christians to shine brightly for your glory. 
We pray for those with Christian influence, even amongst us, whether they be teachers or doctors or, 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 in, or in positions of business. Please, gracious God, would you use them for your glory? But loving Father, as we thank you for our gospel freedoms, we do long that the gospel might go forwards and advance in our nation. We do long for conversions. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for, for the, the work that's been going on in Stratford this afternoon and the encouragement of, of good conversations with different folks. And we pray for the seed that's been sown there, that, that yet that might bear good fruit, and that you might strengthen Ed and others to, to continue to persevere in this task and to be used greatly for your glory. We continue to pray, too, for the church more generally. Thank you for the encouragement that there are, there are baptisms afoot. And we pray for those who are seeking to be baptised, that yet there would be a, a clear testimony of conversion, and that, that they might grow in grace and in love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We pray for our own personal witness in the workplace, amongst our neighbours and friends and others, and ask that you would give us opportunities day by day. We pray for our children likewise, that as they grow up in the training and instruction of the Lord, that you might be pleased to have mercy on them, that they would remember their Creator in the days of their youth. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we come to pray to you this evening, we do come to pray to a great God. As we were praying at the start, we've come to one who is our refuge in deep distress. And we pray for any in this church family who are particularly struggling at this time, whether due to ill health or, or, or financial pressures or, or family situations. Lord, you know their needs. And we pray, gracious God, that they might know grace sufficient for each day and that through the struggles, yet you might be conforming them into the likeness of the Lord Jesus, that you might encourage them with the hope of glory that lies ahead. Indeed, we pray that for all of us this evening as we come to your word in just a moment, that you would be at work in each one of us by your Spirit, that you would help us to see what your word has to say, that you would show us more of the Lord Jesus, and that we might be those who don't just look in the mirror, but who go out resolved to put into practice what your word has to say. And so be at work amongst us by your Spirit, we pray, for we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, before we come back to that passage in Philippians chapter 3, let's sing one more time, this time number 894, a prayer asking that God would be at work in us. Come, O fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. 894.
please do turn back in your Bibles to that passage we read a little earlier from Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, and we're focusing this evening on verses 10 to 21 in particular, page number 1166 in the church Bibles. And the question that these verses ask each one of us this evening very simply is this, what's your life's ambition? I know it's quite a big question to begin with, isn't it, this evening? But but it's a question that we do well to think about. And indeed, it's a question that many people do think about. That's why it's become quite trendy these days to hire a life coach. Someone whose skills are are harnessed to help you unlock your potential and realise dreams that have thus far proven elusive. It's why bucket lists have become a popular concept in recent years. Or why, if you're into the world of Twitter, the hashtag life goals is a popular hashtag for people around the world. It might be to find an ideal life partner. Or to be well enough off to, to live comfortably without having to worry about making ends meet. Or to go on, on an all-expenses-paid worldwide cruise. You know, people know that their time is finite. And so therefore they need to prioritise what they do with it. And so what about you tonight? What is your life's ambition? Here in these verses, the Apostle Paul makes very clear his life ambition to us. Paul, of course, was one of those driven type A personalities. There was all manner of things that that he set his mind to with, with great verve and great vigor. And yet when it comes to pinpointing his life's ambition... He's single-minded. And there's just one thing that he's, he's ultimately set upon. And really there's no greater, no, no more noble ambition than the one he sets out. And Paul says there in verse 10, he says, That I may know him. If you're in any doubt as to who the him is there, just back up to verse 8, where Paul is speaking of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul's ambition, very simply, he would say, I want to know Christ. And now, isn't that just the most extraordinary statement when you think upon whose lips those words come? That this is the Apostle Paul, the one who had met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, the writer of the most amazingly Christ centered letters, letters where his love for Christ just overflows and overflows. I mean, if anyone knew Christ, surely it was this man. Now, what do you mean, Paul? We can understand it if he said to us tonight, I know Christ. We can understand it if he said to us, I want others to know Christ. When he comes to his great ambition in life, the the Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ. Well, that ambition, that ambition of knowing Christ is the theme of these verses we have before us this evening. As here in verses 10 to 21, Paul tells us all about that ambition. He tells us what it means to know Christ. He tells us how he pursues knowing Christ. And how knowing Christ will at last be fully and finally attained. And so let's explore this theme then of knowing Christ together by considering those three areas together. Notice firstly, the goal defined. The goal defined. Verses 10 and 11. You see, of course, knowing Christ isn't just an intellectual knowledge. It's not something that's merely factual. 
Now, Paul is speaking here in relational terms. And that's something that can always deepen and grow. I mean, you know this full well if you're married, right? Think back to the, the young throes of love. When you stood in the aisle on your wedding day and you probably thought that you knew your spouse back then. Well, those of us who've been married for, 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 for decades can doubtless tell us that that really wasn't the case. Even if you've just been married for weeks, you probably realise that. You, you thought knowing your spouse, well, that was what dating was for. But how quickly you realised you were wrong. There was so much more to know and, and so much more that you wanted to know. Well, so it is with knowing Christ. The depth of our relational knowledge of him is to be ever-deepening. Which means then that knowing Christ is, is something that all of us can and must advance in. If it's true of a man like Paul, it's true of each one of us tonight. But how do we advance? How do we come to know Christ? We'll have a look at Paul's definition in verses 10 and 11. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what it means to know Christ. Knowing Christ is to walk the path of suffering and resurrection. Because, of course, to walk this path is to walk the path that Jesus himself walked. That Jesus said when he was on this earth, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, the Christian life is one of daily dying to self. And that's the life the Apostle Paul exhorts us to back in chapter 2 when he, when he speaks of the Lord Jesus himself. That life of humbling ourselves and of serving others rather than seeking our own interests. And that kind of living is both painful and costly. And pursuing gospel-shaped living, it always comes at great cost. And Paul isn't speaking naively here. He knew this only too well from his own experience. Do you remember those extraordinary biographical words at the end of 2 Corinthians 11? That where compared with others, Paul says that he's endured far greater labours, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. At once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And, as if all of those things weren't enough, apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here was a man who knew what it meant to suffer. Paul isn't speaking naively. He's a man well acquainted with the school of suffering. And so then he isn't longing for such suffering, merely for suffering's sake. That would be folly. How could anyone who'd gone through what he had possibly want such things? No, what he wants is the fruit the fruit that such sufferings brings. Because as we die to self, as we become like Christ in his death, this, Paul says, is a sharing. A sharing in Christ's sufferings. 
we could translate that word as fellowship or, or participation in Christ's sufferings. That doesn't mean, of course, that we bear the sin of others like Christ did on the cross. And Christ uniquely did that. But we do suffer for the sake of the gospel and on behalf of others as we deny ourselves. So perhaps we pour ourselves out for a struggling brother or sister in Christ. And as we do so, we just find ourselves overwhelmed with grief or concern or exhaustion. Or perhaps we share the gospel with others. But rather than being joyfully received, we find ourselves despised and rejected. Or perhaps we sacrificially love our wives or or submit to our husbands or or care for our kids when, when frankly we'd rather just have our own way and do our own thing. And yet despite that Christ-like way of living, they don't always, do they, respond with that gratitude and appreciation that we might hope for. Well, you see, as we face these and other things, we participate, we share in Christ's sufferings. That we come to grow in thankfulness. That we come to grow in wonder as we know something of of the self-sacrificial suffering that he endured for us. We come to understand what it means to say that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief to be one who was despised and rejected by mankind to be one who was oppressed and and afflicted for the very people who were rejecting him and so as we suffer then in denying self and and living these gospel-shaped lives do you see what happens the christian is driven to christ the christian comes to know christ But how is it that any Christian comes to know Christ in this way? How how is it that any Christian comes to live like this at all? We'll come back to verse 10. Paul says it's as we know the power of his resurrection. I mean, it's striking, isn't it, that, that resurrection comes before suffering here in verse 10. Normally we expect them to be the other way around. Suffering, then resurrection. Death, then new life. But it's resurrection that comes first here. Because it's the power of Christ's resurrection that conforms us to God's will. That's the the kind of power that it takes. You can't do this off your own bat. It needs resurrection power. What Paul calls in Ephesians 1, immeasurably great power. Power to make us holy. Power to change our desires and our affections so so that we do live Christ-like lives. It's the very same power that that raised Jesus from the dead, that raises us from the dead and transforms us into these people. You see, as we experience that power of his resurrection, we come to share in his suffering simply because we do want to humble ourselves and we do want to serve others for Christ's sake. That's what it means then to know Christ in the here and now. And as we grow in knowing Christ, it's leading inexorably towards the final goal. Towards knowing Christ fully. That comes, verse 11, at the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus returns, suffering leads to glory, just as it did for the Lord Jesus. Well, that's a theme that we're going to return to in a few minutes' time. But but as we see Paul's present goal here. It doesn't take the genius of Albert Einstein, does it, to to realise just how counter-cultural that is. Just think of our our so-called enlightened, materialistic context. That one where suffering and death are are sort of airbrushed, sanitised out of sight. 
where people take insurance against every negative eventuality they can possibly think of. Where we were bombarded with, with the message that, that we should pursue worldly prosperity, worldly enjoyment above everything else. You don't need me to tell you as, as you drive down the street how, how advertising just relentlessly, unavoidably promotes pleasure-seeking. It, it tells you that you're worth it. It exhorts you, seek the good life now. Comfort and ease are seen as, as tantalizingly attainable and therefore pursued with, with tunnel vision. And so the idea of suffering then and, and self-denial is often thought exclusively in negative terms. An unwanted invader disturbing our, our, our desired utopia. Self-fulfillment, self-esteem, they're the watchwords of the day. And they clash explosively with any thoughts of self-denial. And so to speak about knowing Christ in this way, that, that's a thoroughly countercultural thing. Which means then it's very easy for the Christian to get caught up in the world's tide. To follow their way of thinking. To, to want an easy gospel. And to think that Jesus gives me all this good stuff when I, when I come to that day when I die. And that here and now I, I can just pursue what I want. Pursue what the world offers. But you see, such apparently comfortable Christianity is really comfortless Christianity. It's to completely miss the point of what it means to know Christ. John Calvin has this remarkable section in, in his book, The Institutes, where, where he talks about the place of suffering in the Christian life. And at one point he says this, he says, To suffer persecution for righteousness' sake is a singular comfort. He goes on to say, We are too ungrateful if we do not willingly and cheerfully undergo these things at the Lord's hands. Well, I guess we hear things like that and we gulp. But according to these verses, he's absolutely right. And it's true as we, as we apply it to self-denial more generally, to suffering for the sake of Christ. Because in such suffering, there's the joy, the joy of knowing Christ. And so make it your goal. I want to know Christ. But how then are we to pursue this goal? That brings us to our second heading this evening. We've seen the goal defined. Secondly, let's notice the goal pursued. The goal pursued. Verses 12 to 19. You see, because Paul hasn't yet arrived at the goal, he's pursuing it with all his might. It would be a contradiction in terms for him not to do so. This is what Christ Jesus took hold of him for. That's what verse 12 says. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on. To make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so he gives us an example. An example to help us understand how he goes about pursuing the goal. It comes from the world of athletics. Reminds me of the, the days of cross-country running at school. Did you have the pleasure, or the, is that the right words? Did you have the, the, the privilege of doing that? If your experiences were anything like mine, the PE teachers would wait for some wet, miserable, windy day, and that would become very quickly cross-country day. They'd take us to this set of fields and tell us where we'd need to run. Each teacher themselves would be waiting around a corner for us, with this broad grin on their faces as they saw us suffering as we strained around each corner. That's my bitter recollection of it all anyway. And it broke some of us. There we were, straining each fibre, whilst they themselves were sort of shielding themselves under a tree, keeping themselves warm. 
And whilst it broke some of us, though, for the rest of us, our, our competitive instinct would also kick in. That we didn't give up. We, we pressed on. We didn't stop to look behind us and see just how steep the hill was. We'd just run up. We didn't stop to, to see just how deep the muddy hill, muddy puddle that had just soaked us was. We didn't stop to pat ourselves on the back. No, we pressed on. We pressed on to the goal. We strained every sinew and fibre in our being because we wanted to cross the finish line. We wanted to reach the prize. Which in our case was being able to go back inside the warm to have a, a nice hot shower after all we'd been through. Well, you see, the focus of Paul's illustration is precisely on that thing, with how he goes about running. Now look at verses 13 and 14. He says that he forgets what's behind. He strains towards what's ahead because he wants to win the prize. He wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He wants to have the full knowledge of Christ, that which comes when he's called upwards, when he's called to heaven. And so Paul's great concern then in the here and now is with wanting to make progress. Which doesn't mean letting go and letting, letting God. It requires diligent efforts. You see, this life is not a, a mere waiting room for heaven. That which you sort of sit in, twiddling your thumbs, passively waiting for your name to be called. It's not a waiting room. It's a training ground. That in which we grow and we develop as, as we spiritually work out. And so the mature believer then doesn't rest on their laurels. They don't look to, to pass spiritual success and, and allow themselves to be filled with self-confidence. They don't, they don't look at themselves and think, you know what, I'm doing alright here in this Christian life. No, 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 the past, the past is past. Rather than taking a backwards glance, they strain towards the goal. They, they keep on daily taking up their cross and following the Lord Jesus. If you're ever tempted to think that you're just about as godly as you will be in this life, or if you approach Sunday worship with the, with the attitude that, that it's unlikely that anything new or fresh will stir you up to love and good works, well, if that's you tonight, then, then the warning light's flashing on the dashboards. Because you haven't forgotten what's behind. You've stopped straining towards what's ahead. You aren't pressing on towards the goal to win the prize. And Paul says, verse 15, that those of us who are actually mature should think in the way he's describing. What he says there in verse 15, it's no surprise that the verb he uses is exactly the same as the one he uses back in chapter 2 and verse 5, when he calls us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that's the view that we should take, that we should pursue with all of our might. And in doing that then, we're called to imitate some and reject the example of others. Because we all imitate others, don't we? It's just a human thing. You know that full well. If you've got kids, they soon come under good or bad influences, good or bad role models, people whom they imitate. And so Paul tells the Philippians here in verse 17, he says, imitate me as I run the race. And not only me, but, but others who've already followed my example. These people are models. I don't know if you've ever done any, any sculpture work and you've tried to, to make a replica of, of something. But, but if you've ever done that, it's, it's incredibly helpful if you have the real deal in front of you so that you can see what you're trying to base it on. And Paul's saying here, he's saying, I'm the real deal. As are others who follow me. Now sculpt yourself on what you see. 
that's not being big-headed. It's just acknowledging the facts. He is running the race. He is pressing on towards the right goal. Indeed, elsewhere, he tells us to follow him as he follows Christ. You know, that's just the way it should work in the Christian life. You see someone who is outstandingly godly and you want to imitate them. You think to yourself, I want to be like that. Perhaps you hear someone pray and, and you hear the priorities they have and the way they just, just pour themselves out before the Lord with such, such passion, such conviction. And you know you've got the real deal before you. You want to be like them. Well, follow this kind of example, Paul is saying. But the immediate contrast to that is drawn with those examples that they're actively to avoid. Paul speaks in verses 18 and 19 of, of opponents who are troubling the Philippians in some way. He doesn't spell out who they were because he and his readers would have immediately known who he had in mind. Probably they gave the appearance of being believers but actually weren't. Hence Paul's great grief that brought him to tears, verse 18. He describes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. They they were fifth columnists seeking to bring destruction from the inside. Their key problem was that they weren't willing to make sacrifices. They'd do anything to avoid persecution. Because as it says at the end of verse 19, they have their minds set on earthly things. They've got completely the wrong end point in view. They've certainly got no concern for the resurrection from the dead. They weren't willing to pursue the glory of the cross. They're enemies of it. And so therefore they won't know the glory of resurrection. Their race has a dead end. Their destiny is destruction. Their proud glorying is actually their shame. I mean, you instinctively know what the problem with this is, right? If you follow someone into the abyss, your destiny is no different from theirs. No matter how flashy or or how much they promise, if those you follow won't share in Christ's sufferings, they're headed for destruction. How many are drawn to influential Christian leaders who who promise financial success or power? Or to those whose whose new flashy ideology seems to to revolutionise the Christian scene? Be careful. Don't follow those who are headed in the wrong direction. Instead, imitate the right people. Watch them, learn from them, run with them. And as you press on towards the goal, become someone who then should be imitated. Set a godly example through the way you pursue the goal. So that at the end, the Lord might say of you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, that naturally then brings us to consider more carefully the end point that is in view. We've seen the goal defined, we've seen the goal pursued, and then thirdly and finally, notice the goal attained. The goal attained. This is particularly verses 20 and 21. The final goal, of course, has already been outlined by Paul back in verse 11. He told us that he wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's not something that these opponents were pursuing. Their mind was set on earthly things. This world was what they were living for. Their home. But the reason that we shouldn't pursue this world as our ultimate goal is that this world is not our ultimate home. And Paul says as much in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. We're foreigners living in a strange land. We're part of the kingdom of heaven whilst residing here on earth. When Paul says here that our citizenship is in heaven, he's actually using very loaded language. You see, the Philippian folks were were very proud of their heritage. 
They were part of a Roman colony with all the rights and the privileges that, that came with being Roman citizens. It seems that even the Christians in Philippi were tempted to get caught up with this proud way of thinking. But Paul's saying, but that's nothing. You're citizens of a far greater kingdom. When you cross the River Jordan or, or when the Lord Jesus returns, or when you go through the, the heavenly passport control, well then you'll at last be home. And so because our citizenship is in heaven, our minds are not set on earthly things, but on heavenly things. But, but we need to be a little more precise. A little more precise on exactly what our hope is. You see, Paul here is not just focused on the day of his death. I know we sometimes think in binary terms about the Christian life. that We think about earth and heaven. This life and life beyond the grave. And whilst that's not incorrect we can be a little more precise rather than thinking binary perhaps it's better to think in terms of three parts think of good better best you see to be a christian here on earth that is a good thing you've been saved from your sins you're united to the lord jesus but think of the ravages of sin on our bodies bodies that decay minds that that forget and fail body parts that don't work as they should here on this earth is good, but to be with Christ is far better. That Paul himself says this back in chapter 1. But if we go to be with Christ at death before his return, our bodies are decaying in the ground. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. That perfectly satisfied for sure, but nevertheless there's something that is unnatural about that. You know, we're right to grieve at funerals, even funerals of Christians, because it's not how things were made to be. That we were made to be body and soul, united as one. And so Christian here and now is good. That with Christ but absent from the body is better by far. But with Christ, with resurrection bodies, that's what's best. And that's the day that Paul is looking to. The day, verse 11, where by any means he attains to the, to the resurrection from the dead. It's a slightly peculiar phrase, by any means. Probably he's simply saying that he's uncertain about the exact circumstances that will bring it about. Will he experience the better that death brings? Or will Christ return before then so that he goes straight from good to best? Whatever the case, that day is certainly coming and Paul is eagerly awaiting it. You see, it's certainly coming because it's intimately collected to Christ's own resurrection from the dead. In the background here is the idea of the first fruits. Perhaps it doesn't mean very much to, to city lovers like ourselves. You know, we just go to the supermarket and, and we expect to see the food there on our shelves. But in an agrarian economy, you, you were desperately dependent on a good harvest. Each year you'd be, you'd be looking at the ground, straining your eyes, hoping that stuff was about to sprout. And so when the first fruits then started to appear, that was cause for great rejoicing. Because the first fruits was the guarantee that there was more to come. And Christ's resurrection body is the first fruits. It's the guarantee that there is more to come. His resurrected body is the guarantee of ours. Because our resurrected Saviour is going to return. He's going to affect the resurrection from the dead by the immeasurably great power that's been given to him. That's what verse 21 is telling us. And that resurrection from the dead, that won't just be a reset. It won't even just be a, our bodies going back to how they were when we were, were young and fit. 
as much as we might pine for those days. It won't be a reset. It will be a transformation. Paul says that the Lord Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Like his glorious body. That means that there will be continuity between our bodies now and our bodies then. Just as Jesus was recognisable after his resurrection, so I will be recognisable as me and Ed will be recognisable as Ed and so on. There will also be transformation. Quite what that means in practice, I don't know. We'll have to wait for that day. Certainly it will be without any of the ravages of sin that we endure in the here and now. But it will also be more glorious than we can possibly imagine. Our lowly bodies will be like his glorious body. And then Christ will be fully known. We'll be with our elder brother. And we'll be like our elder brother. Don't you long for this? Don't you long to know Christ? Don Carson comments on these verses by saying this. He says, genuine spirituality cannot long outlive an attitude that is homesick for heaven that lives with eternity's values in view, that eagerly awaits Jesus' return. If you were born in a different country or in a different part of this country perhaps, you'll probably know only too well that, that horrible feeling of homesickness. But let me ask you, are you homesick for heaven tonight? Can you say with an old hymn writer that in longing discontent, absent from him I roam, Yet nightly pitch my moving tent, a day's march nearer home. Because what a glorious hope we have. Hope that we can hold on to in the face of sickness, of decay and of death. A hope to hold on to as we daily take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus. Hope to keep on reminding one another through all of our griefs and our sorrows. Hope that in resurrection bodies like Jesus' very own will we'll rise to meet our Saviour in joy around his throne. That we'll marvel at the mercy that bids poor sinners come, be welcomed at his table and share his heavenly home. And so given such a glorious hope, won't we press on, press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us? Won't we run the race with that goal in view, longing to know Christ, for there really is no other goal worth making your life's ambition. May each of us be those who can truly say, I want to know Christ. Amen.